You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. Raul, it's been a minute, as the kids say. It's great to be back with you on this show, especially, I might say, it's macro time. It's Raul pal time. <laughs> yeah, it's suddenly got all a bit macro all of a sudden, which is which is good. I mean, Julian Brigden and I, who uh, uh, write Macro Insiders and uh, Real Vision Pro, we were talking about, you know, God, it's boring, nothing happens. And macro, we always say, is like waiting for the bus. You wait forever, and then 14 buses come at once. <laughs> so, Raul, let's walk through this. Uh, you know, I've actually been watching your Twitter feed very closely. You had an incredibly interesting tweet storm uh, yesterday. Um, about the dollar being key to everything. In fact, let me just read this first tweet. Uh, quote, the dollar is always the key macro variable. When it moves, it moves everything. If the dollar rises sharply back to the middle of the range, it kills the inflation narrative for now. The real guts of the inflation debate is more likely next year's story. Raul, this is everything that's happening in markets right now. It's inflation, it's rates, it's jobs. What's your thinking on the dollar? Now, I talked to Ed about this last week, about that I was thinking that inflation was likely to undershoot most people's kind of very inflationary targets, and that the bond market was telling us something. I always talk about this, you know, the bond market speaks the truth, because the job of the bond market is to closely analyze and forecast where the economy's going. So there's narrative, which is, oh my God, inflation's everywhere, and the bond market was telling us differently that inflation actually peaked out a while ago. So then suddenly the dollar exploded this week. And it's something I've been talking about for a while that the dollar got to the bottom of the range. Analyst forecasts were 100% across the street for the negative dollar. And I've been saying that never works. When they're all one way, it usually goes the other. And at the bottom of the range, it ground out a bottom and then suddenly exploded higher on this confusing narrative. And I think everyone's going to get really confused in this transition because there's the Fed saying, well, in two years time, we might think about possibly thinking about maybe raising rates. And at that scenario, suddenly the dollar explodes and the markets get a bit wobbly and everyone thinks it's because rates are going up. Yeah, but that's not what the bond market's telling you. The bond markets are saying, well, if you do that, dear fellas, you're going to destroy the economy. So therefore, the bond market's saying, actually, we're going to start flattening the curve and we're going to see yields come off. So I want to show some charts just to talk through this narrative a bit further. So I'm going to try sh sharing the screen now. So here is the chart of the DXY. That's the dollar index. The dollar index had tried to make a new low but failed. And um, I've been following things like the DMARC indicators, and they were saying the dollar had bottomed when everybody was saying the dollar's about to break lower, it's going to be a catastrophe. I'm like, I'm not sure about this. The dollar's the key macro variable because everything is priced in dollars. So if the dollar goes down, uh, if the dollar goes up, then commodities go down. It's the inverse because of this denominator, which is the US dollar. Don't confuse that with this denominator stuff I've been talking about, the Fed balance sheet. That's a different thing. That's about fiat currency. But just in straightforward terms, when the dollar goes up, commodities start coming down. So the dollar looks like it's forming this inverse head and shoulders. More dramatically, if you want to see it the other way around, here's the euro. It's a huge head and shoulders top. If the euro breaks this kind of 116, 117 level, chances are it goes to 110. What does that mean? That means basically the reflation trade is about to get unwound. A stronger dollar means weaker commodity prices. It's happening in lumber. It's happening in ags. 
It's not happening in oil. Copper, potentially it's happening. But usually, if the dollar starts moving sharply, commodities come off and the inflation narrative changes. Also, 10-year bond yields, you saw they kind of spiked a while ago, back in March, and they've been coming off since. Now, we're starting to get to the key level, which is about 140 on the 10-year. If we break that trend line, then the likelihood is we start going back towards the lows. Now, I think I talked to Ed about this last week, is every single post-recession period since 1962, bond yields have had a sharp squeeze as everybody has tried to price in inflation. And they're always too early. And usually this is just the rebound effects. And then stimulus from whether it's the central bank cutting rates or QE or fiscal stimulus from the government tends to falter. And the central bank in every circumstance has come on and cut rates two more times at least after the recession finished. And bond yields fall. So I've been waiting for this setup and it's looking that it's starting to happen. The other thing that most people don't realize is that the dollar tends to go up when bond yields fall, not what people think, which is when bond yields rise. The reason being is the dollar is a safe haven. And if things look like the world is slowing down, then we tend to see money flow into dollars. That increase in the price of the dollar, as I said, lowers inflation. So they work in a feedback loop that drives the dollar higher and drives rates lower. Very typical. See, what's actually going on is the forward-looking indicator, which is, and again, I showed this last week, which is China's credit impulse, which is a good um, driver of the Chinese business cycle, has been coming off sharply. Chinese economic data has, has turned negative, and the US business cycle and the world business cycle tends to follow suit soon after. So it's kind of saying, and that's typical again, after a recession, you get the initial sugar rush, and then everything calms down and growth slows back down again. That's usually when the central banks go, oh my God, or the government goes, oh my God, and they start stimulating more. So we've got this slowdown to come in the second half of the year that the markets are not expecting. The year-on-year -year, um, comparisons for CPI as well will automatically mean CPI comes down from 5% to, let's say, 2.5%. So everything's going to feel like it's less inflationary, and we won't know what the true growth forecast is or where growth is going to lie. That's the story for next year. This year, it's going to be probably a, oh, my God, we've got this wrong. The economy's not so strong. And the government will use that as an opportunity, as all the governments will, to ram through more fiscal. They're just waiting for the opportunity to do it. And that will probably mean more QE. So that is the key part of what's happening right now in markets. So let me get rid of the screen. I've got some more charts to show you later. And so I think the, the, the narrative has changed. We're in a transition phase where people think it's reflecting the fact that the Fed are going to raise rates in two years' time. That's nonsense. Even, um, um, I can't remember, one of the Fed governors is on the tape just now saying the Fed always over-anticipates at this point in the cycle. The reality is, I think we've got a slowdown coming and this reflation trade is going to be proven to be well too early. The commodity super cycle may be in play, but that's next, next year's story. I think this year's story, slow down, more stimulus. You're on mute, Ash. Just to connect to the news cycle for people who aren't following it this closely. Uh, so, you know, we saw in the middle of the week on Wednesday, the Fed was unexpectedly hawkish by uh, market expectations, uh, meaning they signaled rates would be rising faster and sooner uh, than people believe. But out in 2023, if you look at the dot plot, if you believe that that is uh, indicative of future policy action, which is always a question, Treasury prices declined. Yields rose, particularly in the five to seven year maturity range. The 10 was up about 10 basis points. Break evens uh, on inflation declined. So, what's so interesting, Raoul, about your thesis is that this brings it more into a bigger picture framework to look at what is happening yeah. in the future. So, what's interesting, Ash, is yields went up for precisely one day and then collapsed to a new low. Yeah. So, today and yesterday, yields plummeted. That is not normal behavior here. It's telling us something as different is going on than the prevailing narrative in markets. It tells you that the Fed are not going to raise rates. Or if they do, it's going to curtail inflation. But they're only talking about 
two years' time, you know, are they going to start tapering? Probably not. Well, they will start to try to think about tapering, and the rate of change of the Fed balance sheet is slowing down dramatically. But my guess is they'll have to pick it up in due course. And that affects all asset prices. So the stock market is now like, I don't like this change. I don't like this dollar moving fast because that's the big daddy. And if the big daddy's upset, you know, it spooks everybody else. Volatility is contagious. So if the big daddy, which is the dollar, the denominator of everything, is like screaming high, the equity market's like, whoa, 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 I don't know what this means. I mean, I already had a call with a friend of mine who runs a giant hedge fund. He's like, oh, we're having to bloody take down risk and hedge because this dollar thing is blowing up all our trades because right. everybody's in this reflation bet. That was the value versus growth bet as well. That was basically this point in the cycle, value outperforms. Now, if we go to a, um, a looser monetary policy environment again and slower growth, it means tech stocks start to outperform again. And we saw that yesterday and day before, things like ARK start really performing again as the, as the equity market starts shifting its inflation narrative as well. So it's going to move equity markets, it's going to probably create volatility. If this carries on and those head and shoulders in the dollar break, the equity market's going to have a puke, you know, a VAR shock. Um, right. Then um, what we'll find is rates will come lower because it offsets the fact that what the equity market's doing. The dollar is lowering the rate of inflation. It brings bond yields down. The Fed start going, oh, well, sorry, we didn't mean about raising rates. What we actually meant was, you know, we need to make sure everything's all right. right. Commodity prices fall because of what's going on. That lowers the inflation narrative and things like gold and bitcoin which really do well when the printing presses start up again properly um i.e the rate of change starts increasing they will start picking up then meanwhile they get caught out in the crosshairs gold for example right. gets hit by a stronger dollar because it's priced in dollars but it also benefits from weaker bond markets so it, it's kind of somewhere in this in this kind of crosswinds and bitcoin's also the same but as the and as the narrative shifts, and remember, macro narratives take time. They're not instantaneous things because you need economic data to start coming in weaker. When that happens, we'll likely see gold and Bitcoin explode higher again, along with probably tech stocks, maybe after a sell-off first. Yeah. Well, while macro narratives take time, Rao, what you're discussing right now, you can see it on the tape. If you look at the 10-year yield, uh, you can see it trading uh, going into Wednesday at about 149 uh, on a yield basis, uh, 149 basis points, shoots up, uh, as you said, about eight, eight basis points on the news, and then it just rolls over, 144. I mean, it's extraordinary to see that this is really reflected in the real-time data on U.S. Treasuries. That's right. And so I, I, I would always say it, pay attention to the bond market. You know, the bond market was telling us something different. Then suddenly the dollar picked it up. And equity's always like, well, what's going on? Oh, shit, macro. <laughs> equity's always the last to figure out macro. So I think the macro outlook is changing and the market's wrongly positioned for it. But don't forget, we went into this with the biggest ever short position in the history of the dollar and one of the biggest ever short positions in the history of the bond markets. That's the magnitude. I mean, everyone's record long copper. Everyone's record long all parts of this inflation trade. Mm. And they're now talking to their risk managers going, are we going to have to cut? Now, it's happened so quick that they haven't cut risks. But this goes on next week or the week after. You'll see the equity markets reflect this volatility as well. And that's I love these macro knock on effects. It's where we make all our money trading macro is understanding these kinds of linkages and when things change. Yeah, and we can see that in the price action today on U.S. equities. Uh, the Dow off uh, the worst day, I think, since October, off it looks like about 1.6%, down 533 points to 33,290 uh, today. Yeah, and so the Dow is down 1.6%, and then the NASDAQ is only down 80 basis points. Yeah. So it's telling you again, there's this preference now of growth over value for the same reason. Um and again, most of the market is missing why this is. They think it's to do with the Fed. I see it on Twitter. It's the opposite of that. It's kind of saying if the Fed does this, that's a huge mistake. Yeah. So it's almost about thinking through and pricing in the reaction functions here. You're talking about a weaker uh, H2 second half of 2021, uh, a correction in commodity prices and a rising dollar. Exactly right. 
That's exactly right. And it's the knock-on effects is where you, you get to make the money because the dollar moves so fast, you didn't really get a chance to do anything unless you're positioned for it in advance. Now, the big question is, does this follow through? Does those head and shoulders break? If it does, we've got a much bigger macro move to come and there's some fun to be had because it creates volatility. So we can trade around that. Uh, we can make some money out of bonds and stuff like that. I mean, bond markets are not going to be a home run with yields at 1.4%. I mean, then, you know, this, you can make some money, but it's not a big trade. The dollar is pretty interesting when it moves this fast because right. it's a low volatility bet that's moving very fast. So that's a good risk reward. Yeah, three tenths of 1%, I think, is the average daily move in the DXY. Yes. And over the last three days, it's moved. It's 50 basis points today, about 100 basis points yesterday and 70 basis points today before that. I mean, it's, these are, you know, double or triple the normal move. Yeah. Yeah. And for particularly for people who are U.S. equity market investors, uh, those kinds of moves in currencies are extremely rare. We see them, obviously, uh, you know, frequently in U.S. equity indices, uh, but in currencies, very rare, particularly around the dollar. Yeah, exactly right. So if you think of it, if the if, you know, an average move in the equity markets up or down 1%, which is actually not less these days. Uh, so this is this is the equivalent of a 3% move, three days running in the S&P, basically, something like that. Yeah. So, you know, that would be, uh, you know, cheeky 10% off the S&P in three days. That's, that's what, you know, that's the kind of VAR shock going on. But because yeah. the dollar has so many linkages, you know, Bitcoin can move up and down, but it has very little linkages. But the dollar has all the linkages. And that's why it creates a bit of havoc. And that's why I've always called it the dollar wrecking ball. If it goes up too fast, it creates havoc everywhere. If it goes down too fast, it does the same thing. My actual view is that the central banks do not want the dollar to go much higher. There's a general dollar shortage in the world because so many people rely on dollar funding. Um, and that issue always comes when weakness comes. People grab for dollars and this game of musical chairs is not enough. I don't think any of the central banks want the dollar to break higher. That would be, you know, kind of above 100, 105. If it did that, that would be a real problem for the world. We'd go back into recession. So I think they don't mind it going back into the range. The dollar index currently is about 92.3. I think the middle of the range, 96 to 98, that's acceptable. Just depends how fast it does it. It's doing it very fast that creates the problems. Yeah. You know, the other thing that's so interesting to me is on the narrative side, the historical view you bring to this framework, uh, talking about how after uh, recessions end, there are always inflation fears. They usually ease. And then the Fed cuts again. Always. I mean, I haven't got the charts here, but I've got a chart of bond yields since 1962. And after every recession or towards the end of every recession, yields spike because of this same inflation's going to be back. They've hyperstimulated. Oh, my God. Then yields plummet because the stimulus starts rolling off and the sugar rush and the year-on-year -year comparisons change. And then bond yields go to new lows almost always, almost 100% of the time. Not 100%, but nearly 100%. Also, I had a monthly DMARC signal on yields that has a 100% track record of calling, again, a major reversal in yields. So it all kind of adds up that, that something really significant might be playing out in front of our eyes. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I thought was really interesting that you mentioned on Twitter uh, was the notion of the potential for fiscal stimulus uh, and potentially very large fiscal stimulus to join in uh, on this side, this time also with the monetary stimulus from the Fed. Yes, because I think that we have a unknown structural unemployment issue with the labor force participation rate endlessly falling. And it's something I talked about with Ed last week is the inflation. We don't know what the natural rate of unemployment is now because of the restructuring of you know, Main Street with you know, re many retail closing down, et cetera, and a restructuring of the economy post-COVID. So if that's the case, then we're going to have to, governments are going to have to find ways of helping those people. And governments have been looking for an ability to use fiscal stimulus to both a win votes because they're politicians, but b to drive the green agenda and to overhaul the global infrastructure. And the real issue is is because global GDP trend rate keeps falling, so they need to try and change the structure of the global economy. But debt and demographics keep getting in the way, so they're going to spend a lot of money. It's to me, it's much like the post World War II era 
um, when we had massive fiscal stimulus to try and retool the global economy. It wasn't actually that inflationary in the end. Um, but what it did do was actually create tons of innovation and growth. And I think that's what's the outcome here. But it's going to be a huge transition for the global economy. And that the ECB, the Fed, the BOJ, everybody is looking for an excuse to hit the fiscal stimulus button. And the central banks have kind of said, don't worry, we've got your back. Because either we impose yield curve control, which means we'll buy unlimited amounts of bonds at a fixed price, so yields don't rise and you don't have a problem funding your deficits. Or if not, you know, we'll undertake more QE and buy these bonds anyway. So yeah. it feels like the government and much like in Japan, the government and the central bank are now the same thing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. Uh, once again, I'm curious on the tech side, on the crypto side, you see this as bullish for exponential age type investments uh, and potentially bearish uh, on the uh, on the on the side where we look at more traditional industrial type of commodities uh, as well as uh, as well as stocks that are involved in more manufacturing. Tell us a little bit about that thesis. Well, generally, these exponential age, these things with network effects where we don't value so much off cash flow. You kind of think of them as super long-term bonds. So therefore, super long-term bonds go up enormously as yields fall. Right. Um, and that's how these things traded all the way through the COVID experience, because they're not cash flow constrained, because they just produce margin and cash flow. They're like machines, these things. Extraordinary. So that makes them very attractive in times of economic slowdowns or economic uncertainty. So that doesn't mean you won't get volatility in them, but they tend to do extremely well indeed. So you know, FANG stocks massively outperformed all other stocks last year. And I think that kind of environment plays out again. So I'm looking at that. Bitcoin, on the other hand, really is a play on central bank balance sheets and the adoption of the technology. So mm. the adoption of technology goes relentlessly forwards. There's been less retail activity because of the sell-off and, you know, some of the Chinese issues and, you know, the ESG narrative has slowed the buying down. So the market's been pretty heavy as Chinese miners have offloaded some of their inventory because some of them are closing up shop or having to move location. And that's that's way down. We see that Grayscale Trust hasn't been buying much Bitcoin recently. But over time, if I'm right and the narrative shifts towards you know what, we need to print more money again, then Bitcoin's going exponential because everybody understands that Bitcoin is the best asset in the world to own in a re-expansion of the balance sheet. Yeah. By the way, Ralph, for people who are not familiar with the exponential age thesis, can you give us a thumbnail sketch? The exponential age thesis is a new macro framework that says macros normally about buying the puts. Um, where you make the money when the economy turns down, like we've been talking about now. You know, you go long the dollar, you buy bonds, um, you buy bonds, and you buy puts on equities, and you make a fortune in short periods of time, and then you eke out returns over other periods of time by maybe owning emerging markets or other things. That's generally how macros always worked. So it's very lumpy returns. But we're going to an age where what is the downside in equities? Because if equities fall, the central bank stimulates. If they stimulate, you lower the denominator and they get repriced higher again. And we saw that after the biggest recession in all recorded history, the equity market screamed higher, went down for a month, and that was it. That's like, everyone's like, whoa, it's because they, they lowered the value of the denominator, fit currency overall. So we know that basically in a situation where any growth is weaker, the central bank prints and therefore equities go up. If equities fall, the central bank prints and equities go up. If inflation rises, the central bank caps yields and ends up buying all the bonds, which is the ex expansion of the balance sheet, equities go up. Yeah. So the only time they go down is VAR shocks. So that's a value at risk shock. That's when something else blows up like the dollar and equities panic. But again, the Fed's got your back. I know this sounds crazy. Everybody hates it. It is what it is. <laughs> and I didn't want to believe this was true, but I now believe it to be true. And in that environment, you want to own the things 
that go up the most. And those are the businesses that have exponential charts because they're driven by network effects. So that's the network effect that we see in Bitcoin that we've seen in all FANG stocks. Facebook is a classic network effect stock. So those things do really well in this kind of environment because they're groundbreaking technologies that are taking new adoption. Facebook, for example, is going to pivot towards VR plus crypto as it brings Facebook DM and it's also buying up most of the VR world. So Facebook's going to play a big role in the future. Apple is doing the same with AR and all this other stuff is going on. So these companies are repositioning for the next S-curve higher, the next exponential adoption of technologies. They're all coming. But that's also against the backdrop of the adoption of artificial intelligence, distributed computing, autonomous vehicles, electric voltaic vehicles, green energy, um, robotics, genetic sciences. All of these things are not now pie-in-the-sky futurist stuff. They're things happening right now and are getting adoption in front of our eyes. If you want to see adoption, see Ethereum and what's going on there. That's mass adoption of technology. So these things are all happening at the same time. They give exponential upside rewards. So in this environment where the Fed's got your back on the downside and the upside's exponential, you want to be long the upside and not looking to trade the cheeky downside you know, macro bet. This is the macro bet that we're transitioning into a different world. And a lot of people are very cynical right. of that because they don't know how to value these things. But right. once you understand, just use a logarithmic chart and look at the adoption of that network and the growth of the network and the number of connections that are being built in the network, then you understand everything and it all becomes clear. Right. Well, we can understand why people hate it. People hate it because it's counterintuitive. It goes against decades of experience, particularly people uh, who've been investing in markets for decades. Uh, it contradicts the things that we learned about in finance textbooks uh, when we were studying this at university. Uh, but we all know on the flip side, thinking about the 2008, 2009, we all know free market purists who wanted to fight the Fed and they got wrecked. That's right. And we also <coughs> knew that these network adoption models have been around for 20 years now. And we fought them all the way because we didn't want to believe it. And the reality is, fine, take it as accepted. If you can't value it, that's okay. Nobody's forcing you to invest in it. But look for something, therefore, that you can value, that you can invest, that plays on the same thesis. So copper would be a great example. So copper is going to be a massive structural deficit for probably 10 years because of this EV green energy revolution. So if that's the case, then the copper price needs to go much higher. So yes, copper may correct here, but you want to be buying the corrections in copper because you're likely to lead a super cycle. So you can play the exponential age in different ways. Um, and that's a, that's a really good way of thinking about it, copper. Well, one of the things I'm curious about is your own asset allocation uh, in relationship to the exponential age. How do you think about it? How do you position it? Uh, and how do you size it? I'm still 100% crypto because I think it's the best of the exponential age bets. There will be a, and that's been painful recently, but nothing's been doing particularly amazingly. So that's right. fine. It is what it is. And, you know, I still look, Ethereum's still up 193% this year and Bitcoin's still up 23%. That's all fine. Um, the, and I'll come on to some charts in that in a sec. Just I know people will be interested. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not putting these bets on. I think this transition phase may be a bit too volatile to want to do that. But if there's a sell-off, then I want to start adding things like ARC, Facebook, um, maybe the Vanek Semiconductors Index, stuff like that, that play into this thing. The only one trade that I do have on uh, that plays into this is carbon futures, the EU ETS, or there's an ETF called KRBN in the US. But that, that futures contract, which I've talked yeah. a lot about on Real Vision, um, I think is a uncorrelated exponential age trade that sits nicely in the portfolio and plays nice with everything else. Yeah. By the way, 100% of your investments, not, of course, 100% of your real estate, other things that you have that are your anchor. No, of my liquid net worth, which I, you know, is calculatedly I can lose because I have you know, income streams and everything else. So, you know, when, when we talk irresponsibly long, it's actually very responsibly long, but it's still right. a big bet. Still a big bet. You know, my whole personal, you know, cash balance sheet is in this. Yeah. Uh, we've got questions rolling in as you're Let me, not... before we do this, I'm just going to show some quick charts because I know people want to do it and it'll head off some questions. Yeah. Is I'm going to show some updates on the crypto charts. 
That's exactly uh, what people are asking about, Rao. What a shock. Yeah. So, <laughs> context. This is, in blue, the Bitcoin price 2010 to 2013. Against, in white, the current price. Kind of spookily similar. And here or hereabouts, whether we carve out a new low, which is quite possible, maybe it's significantly lower, maybe it's another 20% lower, I don't know. But around this kind of timing, July, August, we should start rising, stabilizing, and then going up. What that means, you can't tell it on, on a log chart, but that's what that actually looked like on a non-log chart. Wow. It's ridiculous. Now, will that repeat that? Who knows? I'm not looking for perfect matches. I'm looking for contextualization of what mid-cycle sell-offs look like in crypto, how miserable they feel, and what happens if you end up closing out too early and the damn thing goes up. I mean, no issue closing out, but you know, if you start breaking high, you want to be involved because the upside is going to be quite big. Mm. Here's it versus the 2016-2018 cycle, also pretty similar. This correction is slightly bigger than that one, more like 2013. Um, but it's kind of, again, contextually the right kind of thing that we should be seeing. And all the way through this, I've warned people, you shouldn't be investing in crypto unless you expect, not fear, expect a 50% pullback. And those pullbacks are to be bought. If the crypto cycle stopped now, it would disprove everything from the stock to flow to all of the charts, all of the work, all of the adoption models, everything. So it feels to me a low probability chance that anything has changed. I understand that China has changed in this story. Um, that's happened at every time. They banned it in 2013, banned it in 2017. These are not new funds. You know, these are kind of existing fear, uncertainty, and doubt that's always been around. So structurally, I don't think anything's changed. So it's one of those periods in the middle where the price is sloppy as hell. Everybody feels miserable, doesn't know when it's going to get traction. And before you know it, it gets traction, starts going up. That's just how it is. And that fits with the macro backdrop, which is the second half of the year. Growth is slower. People start thinking, you know what? Maybe the Fed aren't going to raise rates. Maybe they're going to cut rates. Maybe bond yields break that 140 and start heading down towards one. Then suddenly the game is on and crypto and stuff like gold starts screaming higher again. Yeah. As we as we have this conversation and look at the questions, in fact, uh, we can see uh, this is what people are thinking about, what they're asking about, what they're wondering about. Uh, one to it comes to us from Steve, uh, who's curious about uh, BIS uh, banning Bitcoin payments and probably coming on the wake of the World Bank commentary on the El Salvador uh, uh, crypto adoption uh, via Bitcoin through Jack Maller, Zap, uh, and Strike. Curious what you think about these multinational, supranational organizations like BIS and World Bank uh, coming out with some, I guess you could say, cautionary comments at best. Well, the other side is listen to any speeches by Benoit Couré from the BIS, who came from the ECB. Right. And he knows it's all coming. They just want to get themselves in shape to regulate and build their own on-ramps and off-ramps, which is known as central bank digital currencies. Right. Just, they just fear everything happening too fast. I don't think anybody thinks they're going to stop it or want to stop it. They just want to make sure that they get their arms around it. Um, and that, that, I think, has always been modus operandi. They're not like anti-technologists who don't want to see the future. They know the future, hence they wouldn't have developed central bank digital currencies. They just need time. I get it. And you know what? A lot of the institutions would quite like a bit of time, too, to get regulatory clarity. So I think it's coming. I think all of this stuff is actually good for larger adoption in the space. Yeah. So, and you've made this point before, which is about uh, central banks, policymakers, multinational organizations, having the framework to understand, regulate at some level, uh, and uh, also, of course, tax some of these uh, asset classes. Yeah, they want to treat it as another, as any other asset. They don't want massive leakages, particularly not this day and age when everyone's running massive record deficits. They just want their fair share and they don't want you to use it for nefarious means. Now, it's crypto. You know, people can use all sorts of privacy solutions, but they just want the main things to be regulated. But they're so far behind. They have no idea how to regulate DeFi right now. Right. Nobody can get their heads around it. And with the decentralized exchanges, all of this stuff, no, nobody can get their head around it. I get it. They have to rewrite the rules from scratch. They all know it. But again, they just haven't assembled a team fast enough to be able to do it. Um, it's going to take a few years. So it's not going to be till the next crypto cycle. You know, I don't think we'll get a full set of 
globalized crypto regulations that are new, not using securities laws. I don't think we're going to get that for another three or four years. Yeah. Here's one that comes to us from Seth Katz. This is a very technical question. Uh, is the dollar move tied to hedge fund liquidations and leveraged commodity long positions? It's tied to it because it was an accelerant because people were record short. It's not a technical, some fund blew up. Somebody's probably blown up somewhere because that's what happens when things move fast, right? It's just normal. You know, a lot of leverage um, and big moves. But it's, it's tied to the liquidation of positions for people who had the wrong bet on. Everybody was on one side of the boat, essentially. Yeah. Here's one that comes to us from FR. Raul, any updated thoughts on Tether and other stable coins lately with the Titan coin collapse? Uh, no. I mean, I've always said all of these stable coins do not give you a 5 to 8% yield for no reason. They are not U.S. dollars. I fight with Travis over this all the time. It's like, they're not dollars. They're not 100% fungible for dollars. And everybody should know that. And yeah. that's okay. Because let's say Tether is not perfectly linked. And let's say it's got a 10% downside risk. Well, it won't be 100% downside risk because it's all the backing of a bunch of collateral. But let's say the collateral is not as good as you want, all of this stuff. So it's got 10% downside risk. Well, you only need to own it for a year and a half and get that yield to have completely mitigated the risk. So are you being compensated for the risk in the yield? Generally, probably. Now, these new protocols that could be hacked and stuff like that, that's right. more difficult. And I've warned people, I said, you know, people are testing new product. We're trying to figure it out and nobody knows. Feel free, like Mark Cuban, to take risk with your money that you can afford to lose. And Mark's not going to cry over it. He'll have taken it as a learning. Right. But don't put all your money in this stuff because we don't know. We haven't gone through a risk cycle. And that's why I don't personally use DeFi because I think it's very interesting, but I'm not interested in a 5% yield in an asset that goes up 200% a year. It kind of, if I expose myself to a total loss to get that 5% yield, I've just never been that guy. And that's my macro background. You know, we, we tend right. not to be yield players, yeah, from a price players. Yeah, from a from a risk reward perspective, it looks kind of uh, a curious bet to make, right? I mean, when you if you're going to risk something where you can lose all of your capital, you want real material upside. Exactly right. Um, so, and some of them you don't risk all of your capital, and I really, honestly, don't believe these stable coins are a total risk of capital loss. And I don't think Asian merchants will care one way or the other if it trades at a five percent or premium or discount to its fair value. I, for example. And I, again, I was discussing this with Travis on Twitter last night, is I used to be involved in a lot of kind of capital restriction arbitrage. So people in South Africa had two currencies, the commercial rand and the financial rand. They traded at two wildly different rates because one allowed you to get money out of the country and one didn't. Right. And that's normal. And those differences can be up to 20% difference. And people will pay the 20% to get money out because it's, it's offering a reason. So stablecoins in Asia offer Malaysian exporters an ability to do business with Chinese importers and vice versa, frictionlessly, without having to go through the central bank and get all the approvals, and without crossing a bit off a spread uh, of the ringgit RMB cross rate, which is very illiquid. So hmm. they, will, they don't really, they're not after a one-for-one one peg. Nobody's looking for a perfect dollar here. Right. Um, so that's that's my view on it. And you get compensated for it in the yield. Yeah, very well said. And it brings in the broader macro framework that we've been discussing. Markets uh, aren't stupid about price, pricing yield. You know, the reason junk bonds have low yields right now is the Fed has basically said we will not allow anybody to go bust. That's what the last recession told us. So therefore, same with Greek government bonds and Italian government bonds. Right. There's zero risk premium. Zero. So they're and, getting bid. <laughs> And in these, they're saying there's a big risk premium. Why? Because nobody's got your back, so you need to be compensated, and that's fine. 
Yeah. And by the way, I would add very well said in terms of understanding this and tying it to the macro framework uh, and to FR, I would also say, uh, you know, also when you think about stable coins, this is a very broad general category. Uh, there are fully collateralized stable coins that are highly regulated, uh, things like uh, Paxos and uh, Circle USDT. Uh, and then there are these partially collateralized stable coins. There are hybrids. And then at the extreme end, uh, there are the stable coins that look like Titan, which are programmatic stable coins, algorithmic stable coins coins that are based on technology that is very new, uh, that are doing things that are very difficult to understand, not at all transparent in my view. Uh, and that's why you see those vastly differing uh, risk premia. Uh, yeah. And, and when you use something like Titan, you're basically taking a VC bet on a technology that's not been fully tested through a cycle. And again, that's okay if you want to, but I hope you're being compensated for it. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that's how you need to think about these things. Am I being compensated for the risk I'm taking? Yeah. This is a great question from Devin Shaw. Uh, Ralph, what indicators are you looking for to confirm your thesis that on growth and crypto is back on? So first, I want to see the Citibank Economic Surprises Index, the SESI, go negative. It hit zero, bounced last few days. That would say that the economic data is coming out weaker than expected. I'm watching the ECRI lead indicator because that is a great guide to the business cycle. Um, Laxman, who runs ECRI and myself, are going to be at the Festival of Learning um, talking about business cycle, and it can't be more important than what's going on now. So I'll be looking at the business cycle. So first, the City Economic Surprises Index. Then I'm expecting to see the ECRI show weakness in its weekly uh, rate of growth. Then we will see the knock-through effects in ISM and other indicators. We're already seeing some housing slowdown in the US as well. So that's interesting. We've seen lumber slowdown. So we're starting to collect some bits of evidence. Let's see more. These things usually take longer to play out than you expect. So, so that's why the thesis, we should be able to pick data points up, but we won't be able to get maximum macro taking risk on that full slowdown picture yet. Doesn't mean you can't play weaker bond yields for a bit. You can't pay a stronger dollar for a bit, but there's we haven't we can't hit the ignition button. Like okay, great, this trade is really fully on yet, and that's probably going to be late summer. Yeah, talking of the festival of learning, Wednesday, June twenty third through Friday, June twenty fifth. Give us a little bit of a preview. Of what you're most looking forward to? I just love this thing because everybody who watches Real Vision is part of the learning tribe, and what that means is all of us know we don't know anything or everything. And so therefore, what better way to learn than from people who've gone through the learning themselves and have great experience? So some of the most famous investors in the world are there talking to us about how they've learned things, what they've learned, and things that they can teach us. Whether it's technical analysis to what they screwed up, how ha uh, Howard Marks changed his mind on technology stocks because his son opened him to the eyes of the new world, the exponential age, essentially, through to Daniel Kahneman and, you know, how behavioral economics is playing a larger role in all of this um, through to Neil Ferguson and what history teaches us. You know, there's so much learning. It's a ridiculous group of people involved in this. And, you know, everybody will get something out of it. And it, for what it costs for people who aren't Real Vision Plus members to do this, to learn this is literally nothing for what you get out of it. The value proposition is crazy skewed. So, you know, I, for one, will be glued to the screen watching all of this stuff. It's also incredibly fun. I think it's one of the most fun events that oh, we Christ, do. Oh, Christ, yeah. You know, Slack channels open, thousands and thousands of people getting excited on the Slack channels, lots of amusing conversations, just tons going on. Yeah, I mean, it's like artists and Nobel laureates, investors, traders. I mean, it's just fascinating. fascinating. I mean, last time Hugh Hendry... Uh, wiped it, wiped himself out in the surf, came in with a bleeding forehead and concussion and came in live, hot and heavy. That's the kind of fun that we have in this. And crushed it. And crushed it, as always. Yeah. Uh, talking of new things, rather, one thing I wanted to bring up, uh, I was watching your interview, I guess it was uh, aired yesterday, uh, perhaps today, uh, with Dominic Williams from Definity. 
Cloud 3.0. I found this absolutely fascinating. For people who don't know, this is about running code uh, in a stable, safe environment, like in the wake of the solar winds attack. The idea that basically we can use some of the distributed, uh, decentralized architectures to create an entirely new cloud, an entirely new internet. Really fascinating conversation and a brilliant guy. Yeah, I still don't understand any of it. <laughs> you know, I actually to be truthful dominic's really bad describer of it <laughs> because he's 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 a techie he's a developer and it's really hard for somebody like me who's a very superficial knowledge guy trying to figure out it, it sounds amazing but everything sounds amazing so i can't you know i can't tell and that's a feature of this space is you really need to know your stuff it's hard so you know that token fell 90 odd percent because there was a lot of VCs involved in this and they made thousands of percent returns and they're all taking their profits. And so the, the token falls, everyone then goes, it's a scam. And you know, the, the usual negative narrative, the reality is, is we won't know until we start to see network effects. Do developers build on it? Do people want to invest in it? Does it create solutions that people understand? And that, you know, that's true of all of these things, you know, whether it's Polkadot or Cardano or Hex or, I mean, you name it, we don't know. We don't know. These are big ideas. They're all big ideas. Which one works? Which one gets traction? We're going to have to find out. And that's half the fun of this space. Everybody can play the VC. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, the token is I think called ICP, and it obviously got whacked in. Yeah, May. the Internet Computer. I mean, even that name is kind of a statement of intent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very well said. Uh, but it is the, and this is what's so much fun I think about what we get to do at Real Vision is try and understand the big ideas and then understand them in the context of differing time horizons as investments, uh, understanding that there's obviously a tremendous amount of risk in some of these radical ideas that really are upending some of the basic information architecture that we have in the world today yeah and we also don't know i mean you, you can't tell the network adoption effects of most of these things in a one-year period in a crypto bull market you know you're actually going to take time so really what you're doing first is getting your feet wet understanding some of this stuff maybe having some small bets here and there as i've said you build a basket of stuff you watch how it trades you get interested and maybe by the time the next cycle comes along you go yeah you know what this is the bet for me. Right. This is the one I think is going to really work. And here's my thesis why. Um, but, you know, with all of this right now, it's still guesswork. Um, right. and, and that's okay. So it's risky. Um, and it's like VC bet. So you have to size things accordingly. Very different to Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are proven network effects at scale. And that doesn't look right. like it's slowing down. So in which case, you've kind of got the validation for the time being that that should continue to play out. The others are all part of the risk curve. So they just go up more when Bitcoin and Ethereum go up and go down a lot more when they go down. And that's okay. Junk bonds work the same, well, used to work the same way. That's all changed. Emerging markets work the same way and frontier markets. Markets always work like that. That's what risk curves are all about. Yeah, I mean, to me, what was so fascinating about Definity was the concept and the technology. Forget about the investment for the moment. Forget about the return. Just understanding the idea that the potential exists to build a world computer uh, like Ethereum, uh, but in a different way that potentially creates a secure space for code execution, where the data uh, and the code that's being run can be isolated and segregated. Think about what the potential value of something like that could be, whether it's version 0.1, whether it's version 1.0 or version 2.0, these are technologies, these are ideas that are coming. Yeah, I mean, this project is clearly the biggest in ambition of any project in the space. Because it's basically saying, here's an entirely new architecture for the internet that is driven by cryptography and is scalable beyond anything that exists currently today is faster than all of the other blockchains added together in terms of number of um, processes, uh, number of blocks it can produce. Um, it is of a different order of magnitude. People are pretty cynical about it. But let's see, because if this is the scope of the breakthrough, and the investors in this are some serious investors, um, 
A16Z, Polychain Capital. Yeah, so let's see. Let's see. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Do your homework. And that's what I'm doing with this. I mean, I'm still, you know, I talked to Dominic. I still don't really understand it. All I know is it's big and it's complicated. And if he can't explain it very well, it's going to take a while to get adoption. That's okay. Um, you know, I'm not there to punt the token. I don't even own it. Um, but I'm there to learn this because it's going to give me a better understanding of this whole space if I do. As I'm watching the comments in the YouTube window scroll by, too fast for me to see the name, but someone just wrote, I always think of ICP as insane clown posse. <laughs> I've seen that as well. <laughs> Rao, we've done it once again. We've run over time. Um, final thoughts, big episode, lots that we spoke about on the macro front, on the technology front, uh, and of course about the Festival of Learning. The key little nugget I'll leave you with is volatility is contagious. It just gets moved around. So if volatility starts in currency markets, just be careful. It can spread fast because um, it moves things very, very quickly because it is the daddy. And when the daddy is on the move and it's a bit upset, everybody's going to pay the price. So there's no guarantees of that. You know, I'm not shorting markets or anything. I'm just say to people, just be wary. The dollar's moving fast. Things can get ugly quickly. So where might daddy go? I think daddy, yeah, I think the dollar goes a lot higher than people expect into that middle of the range. I do think bond yields come significantly lower. Not all going to happen in one go. You know, this is probably the next couple of months that we'll start to see this. That will be validation of my thesis that growth is slowing faster than people expect. That will be validation of the thesis that, um, that um, the central banks and the governments will be back in play later in the year, towards the end of the year or early next year. That will start getting priced into those assets. Equities in the meantime will get all confused and upset and might have a little, you know, sulk, um, you know, and may go and hide in their room for a while. That may happen uh, within this kind of macro shift. Let's see, because the inflationists are saying, you're all wrong. This is just a temporary lull. The market's got it wrong. Maybe the inflationists are right, too. I think they'll have their chance in another 12 months time to start talking about inflation as we start building a proper recovery with proper global demand where COVID's not still knocking out whole countries. Um, and then, you know, and supply chains free up a bit, but demand comes back. Then we can, and massive more stimulus, then we can talk about inflation. Right now, I think we're talking about the wrong thing. Yeah. The macro narrative is back, Ralph. The macro, macro is back. Always a pleasure, Raul. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, have a great weekend, everybody. Uh, enjoy yourselves. Keep an eye on the dollar. Thanks for watching, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.